Well, thank you again, as always, to all of those who have helped to put our worship service together, for Colin Ebers, who was our liturgist, for our praise team and Wesley Choir, who provide our music leadership, and for Gary Brubaker, who puts all of our music so wonderfully well together for us. Thank you. We're in our second week of our three-week series on the book of Esther. And maybe the book of Esther is one that is really familiar for you, or maybe it's not. Um, no matter where you are on that spectrum, hopefully we'll all be able to learn something new as we take a deep dive into this story, its meaning, and what it has to say to us for such a time as this. Would you pray with me? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, well, let's just catch up with the story so far. So this is your previously on Esther. Um, so um, Esther is a Jewish woman, and she becomes king of the, or queen of the empire. Um, the king, his name is um, Xerxes or Asusurus, um, depends on which translation and which version you're reading, what name it is, his uh, Greek name or his Persian name. But um, the king is a vindictive, violent, ego-driven man. Um, and then there's Haman, and Haman is the number two guy, um, so right underneath the king. And Haman hates Jewish people and orchestrated a genocide of the Jewish people because it started because Mordecai didn't bow to him. And Mordecai is Esther's uncle um, and saved the king from an assassination attempt. So uh, Mordecai also is the one who reminds Esther um, and, and tells Esther that maybe your call is to save your people for such a time as this. Um, so here we are um, uh, with these characters and they're kind of caricatures of people, um, kind of the extremes of personalities. I mean, the king himself is not not the brightest crayon in the box, um, not too bright, driven mostly by his own ego, for his own quest for power and for his excessive enjoyment. And then Haman is also really driven by his ego and his hatred for the Jewish people. Um, and that seems to be pretty much just who they are. There's not a lot of um, movement in there. So when we left the story, um, Esther was trying to decide what to do next after she's been informed of Haman's plot for genocide of the Jewish people. What does she do next? Does she tell the king? Does she have self-preservation? Um, what does she do? <laughs> and Mordecai has organized the Jewish people to pray and fast during this time as Esther figures out what to do for such a time as this. So here's the thing. If Esther goes to see the king uninvited and he doesn't want to see her, she could be killed. So that's another you know, piece of self-preservation. And she really doesn't know how he's going to react to seeing her. And so she summons all of this courage and, um, and the courage of, their of her people. Remember, they're praying and fasting along, alongside her. Um, she summons all this courage and goes to decide what to wear, um, what to wear to this. And I mean, what do you wear to see the king who could possibly kill you to tell him about this plot to save all your people? I mean, 
Do you think about what the king has asked of previous queens, like when he asked Vashti to come and dance for he and his friends in her crown and only her crown? Um, do you wear something flattering, something that makes you feel good? Do you wear your jammies? What do you wear um, that communicates what you're trying to say? So uh, Esther ultimately puts on her royal robes. Um, and I think some of that is to remind the king of who she is. Hi, I'm your queen, just in case you forgot, in case you don't remember me. I know there's lots of others involved, but um, hi, Queen Esther here. And so she walks into the room in her royal robes. And everyone in that room must have been holding their breath because they all knew what could happen. If someone comes into that room uninvited, and the king doesn't want to see them, they would be killed. And so as Esther's walking in this room, uninvited, there's probably this like <gasps> collective breath holding of what's gonna happen next? <clears throat> now the tradition was that if the king lowered his scepter, you were good. Um, then the king was inviting you, you could talk, fine. If the king didn't lower your scep the scepter, um, you would be killed. You know, banished at the very minimum, but really killed. Um, and so Esther comes in and there's this breath holding, what's the king gonna do? And he looks and he's like, oh, oh it's Esther. And so he lowers the scepter and, and asks, what do you want? And so she invites um, the king and Haman to a banquet right away. Come to dinner right now. Come to this banquet that I've got prepared. Now she's prepared for this. This wasn't like a spur of the moment thing, a spur of the moment decision. She had made arrangements for this, like the food, um, the setting, all of those things. She had been planning this. And so they come with her to have this banquet. They have this great meal. And then the king says, so what is it that you want? And she says, you know what? I want you to come back tomorrow because I have another banquet prepared for you. And then I'll ask the question that I have. So they leave and Haman especially leaves. Like he's on cloud 99. Um, he's feeling really good about this because he has been invited to a private banquet with the king and the queen. Just them, just the three of them. Like he's feeling really good about himself. Um, and so for someone who is, especially who is really, um, really driven by his ego, he's feeling real good right now. Until he sees Mordecai at the city gates and Mordecai again doesn't bow to him and his anger is just seething. He is just reminded all over again about his anger and his plot to kill all of the Jewish people. Um, and so... You know, he brings all of his friends and his family together to list out all of his accomplishments and um, all of his money and all of his honors, even how many kids he has, which I think his wife probably knows. Um, but he's just like naming all of the things that like he is so proud of and the things that are just, everyone should be honoring me for these reasons. Um, and, uh, and he says to his friends, what should I do? to someone who disrespects me so much? What should I do to that person? What would you do? And he's like, I'm already organizing a genocide. What more can I do? And so his friends are like, well, kill Mordecai, you know? Just, um, just kill Mordecai right now. And so he builds, it's almost this comically large gallows. 
um, 75 feet tall. That's probably longer, but higher than 75 feet. The 75 foot tall gallows. And the gallows were kind of like a spike um, so that uh, Mordecai could be impaled. Um, so you kind of just drop someone on the spike. That's the punishment. Um, and so he is building this 75-foot-tall gallows so that Mordecai could be impaled tomorrow before he has the second banquet with the king and the queen so that he can come in, you know, I guess on a high, uh, like, look at what I've done. Um, I don't think I want to understand uh, Haman's mind at that point. But so Haman's like, done, that's a great idea. Well, as the story continues, um, you know, nighttime falls. And I wonder about Esther. I mean, could Esther, could Esther sleep that night? Or was she thinking about the request that she'd be making tomorrow to the king? Was she thinking about her people? Was she thinking about her uncle or, or how Haman might react? Was she kind of restless, tossing and turning? Could Haman sleep or was he just too busy building his 75-foot-tall gallows, his torture tool? We don't really know about Esther or Haman, but we do know that the king couldn't sleep for some reason. And so as part of his like bedtime story, uh, he asked someone to bring him in the royal record. And the part of the story that was read to him was the story of Mordecai, um, foiling the assassination plot. And um, the king asked the, the person reading the royal record um, how he recognized Mordecai, and how he honored and celebrated Mordecai, um, and then realized that he didn't. And this was, a, um, this was a really big deal. This was not an okay thing. It was really common for kings to reward lavishly those who had done, who had done good things for them. And when the king realizes he hasn't done that, um, he feels, I guess he feels awful um, and, and wants to rectify this. Um, and um, similar to Haman, I guess, um, the king doesn't think for himself very well not the brightest crayon in the box. Um, so the king doesn't think very well for himself. And so he asks, um, which advisors of mine are awake? Um, who can I ask, you know, what I should do? And the only one awake is Haman, which is probably because he has been building the gallows um, and planning Mordecai's death. So Haman's awake. The king says, Haman, come in here. Um, and he, he asks Haman, what would you do to recognize someone who has done the king, of the fa the king a favor? And Haman is like, this is what I have been waiting for. That Haman thinks, well, surely the king means me because, hello, um, surely I am the one that the king wants to honor. And so in Esther 6, 7, and 9, this is what um, Haman says, this is what you should do, um, thinking that it's him. For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe that the king has worn and a horse that the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on, a, on a, one on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Like, this is a huge parade. And now these are all the things that Haman really wants. And the king agrees. He is like, yes, I love that idea. Go do that for Mordecai. I mean, there's this 
almost comic scene that happens here. That can you picture it? That Haman has been describing what he wants for himself. And then the king is like, and do that for Mordecai. You know the, the guy you hate, the guy that you're just plotting to kill right now, the guy who, um, that you asked <laughs> the king permission to kill. Um, Mordecai the one Haman had plotted against, Mordecai, the one who, um, who Haman feels has disrespected him the most, Mordecai. Mordecai is going to be honored. And so Haman has to watch as the kingdom honors Mordecai in all of the ways that he wanted to be, he wanted to be honored. And can you feel the rage just seething? And so he's filled with this anger, fueled by his friends and his family. And then he's whisked off to go to the second banquet, the, the dinner with the king and the queen. And the second banquet happens and they have a wonderful dinner again. They've been drinking some wine and the king asks again, Esther, what is your request? And I will give it to you. And so Esther summons all of the courage inside her and she makes the request of the king. In Esther 7, verses 3 through 4, Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. In her request for the king, she outs her heritage, tells him that he's a Jew, she's a Jewish woman, which he didn't know, and tells him who her people are. And she tells this to the king and to Haman, Haman, who started this whole conspiracy. And the king can't believe he would have done something like this. And he wonders who conspired. And Esther cries out, Haman, Haman is the one. Can you, again, can you just like see this picture of Haman just sitting there like, mm, not me. <laughs> Haman, Haman is the one. And the king is so overwhelmed that he just leaves. He just goes out into the garden. I don't know, is it to clear his head, to get some fresh air, to think about what's happened? I mean, we don't know his motives other than he is filled with rage. The king is angry. And so Haman stays behind and begs Esther for his life. Now, this is not acceptable for a few reasons. One of the biggest reasons is that a man other than the king could not be alone with the queen. That's why there were so many eunuchs, because men were not allowed to be alone with the king, the queen. And so Haman begs the queen for his life, and he gets a little too close to her when the king walks in. And the king is furious because he makes assumptions about what Haman might be doing and says, you know what? It calls for the death of Haman. And on the same gallows that he has just been preparing for Mordecai. Oh gosh, what a picture of, of irony. <laughs> and so then the king says, now what? What do we do now? Because edicts from the king, like the one that was made about the genocide of all the Jewish people, the edicts are permanent. 
um, he can't reverse them and can't take away the plans for genocide. So what he does is he gives Mordecai his signet ring to be able to make edicts, and he gives Haman's estate to Esther, and he's like, you guys figure it out. I don't know what to do. Um, <laughs> needs some help. Um, so Mordecai writes an edict, because you can't take away um, what's already been done, but instead writes an edict that says, now the Jewish people can fight back should any army come to kill them. And not only can they fight back, but they can kill men, women, and children and take away all the property and possessions of anyone who attacks them. Now, this is a big deal. I mean, it would make it absurd to then carry out the first edict. I mean, would you want to put your children or your grandchildren's lives at risk at this point? Would you want to lose everything that you have? I mean, it just makes that first, that first edict, like, why would you do something like that? when this is what could happen. And so rightfully so, people decide that it would be too great of a risk and the lives of the people are saved for such a time as this. Now, there's a little bit more that we'll finish with the story, so it's still another cliffhanger here. Uh, there's a little bit more that goes on with the story, but, but can you think about what has just happened and the courage that Esther had. Now, fear is such a, it's a big thing. And it can be paralyzing. And sometimes fear is a good thing, right? Like sometimes fear keeps us safe. We know it's not a good idea to walk into oncoming traffic. And, and yet sometimes we just do or, or don't do something just because we're afraid. And over and over in the scriptures that tells us, do not be afraid. And that's usually after something frightening has happened. And then we're also taught to fight our fear, be fearless, which seems like it would be a great idea. And yet when you fight something that's larger than you, how well does it go? Does it go peacefully and, and quickly? Or does it fight back? I mean, if usually if there is, if something is strong and has some sort of health to it, it's not gonna go quietly. And I don't know that there really is such a thing as being fearless. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's not knowing that you should be afraid of something. <clears throat> but I think the other option is to summon your courage and to be brave, knowing that something is scary or frightening and doing it anyway. And there's courage all throughout the story of Esther. In the face of great terribleness, Esther calls upon all of her courage, and not even just her own courage, but the courage of her people for such a time as this, calls upon that courage to save her people, putting her own life at risk again and again to do what is right and best, being scared and doing it anyway. This is a story about doing hard things. It's also a story about resistance, standing up to an unjust political leader, following something that your faith tells you to do to save your people, facing whatever consequences might come, walking into that chamber knowing she could be facing death, summoning that courage. And when you stand up against an unjust empire, an unjust king, an unjust ruler that doesn't really care about people and their well-being, an empire 
a ruler that pits people against each other and claims particular groups of people unwelcome or, or maybe less than human or worthy of death. To stand up to an empire, an unjust ruler like that is hard. This is a story of Esther and Mordecai who do hard things for such a time as this. Nicole Nordeman um, has this, sound, uh, this song, it's called The Sound of Surviving. Um, and she says about this song, she said, this song is really about someone who's in the middle of a fight and not on the other side of it. I think it's profoundly important to tell ourselves and God and each other, I'm still here, I'm still fighting for such a time as this. She said, sometimes the only voice trying to steal my hope and silencing my soul is my own. And I wanted this song to be defiant, to shake off the fear and doubt and lean hard in how it sounds to be surviving something in real time at the center of the battle. Here's the lyrics of the song. They told me I'd never get to tell my story. Too many bullet holes. It would take a miracle. These voices inside my head like poison, trying to steal my hope, silencing my soul. But my story is only now beginning. Don't try to write my ending. Nobody gets to sing my song. This is the sound of surviving. This is my farewell to fear. This is my whole heart deciding I'm still here. I'm still here and I'm not done fighting. This is the sound of surviving. These pieces, the ones that left me bleeding intended for my pain became the gift you gave me. I gathered those pieces into a mountain. My freedom is in view. I'm stronger than I knew. And this hill is not the one I die on. I'm going to lift my eyes and I'm gonna keep on climbing. This is the sound of surviving. This is my farewell to fear. This is my whole heart deciding I'm still here. I'm still here and I'm not done fighting. This is the sound of surviving. I'm still here. Say it to the ache lying there awake. Say it to your tears, I'm still here. Say it to the pain, say it to the rain, say it to your fear. This is the sound of surviving. This is my farewell to fear. This is my whole heart deciding I'm still here. I'm still here and I'm not done fighting. No, I'm not done fighting and I'm still rising, rising. I'm still rising and I'm not done fighting. This is the sound of surviving. Can you hear Esther singing the song for such a time as this? Trust your courage. Rely on God when you don't have all the answers, when you don't have all of the strength. Pray and fast for such a time as this. You are braver than you think you are because God is with you. This is my whole heart deciding I'm still here for such a time as this. Be brave to live the call that God has called you to, the life that God has called you to, because the God who calls you will not abandon you. The God who calls you will equip and support you. I'm still here for such a time as this.
Thanks be to God. Amen.